Well, hello, friends. This is Eddie, host of The New Activist. It is good to see you. I am excited to share with you this episode. This is actually a re-released show. It originally aired October 5th, 2016, and it is a conversation between Bethany Wang and Andy Crouch. This show, Far and Away, is our most quoted show. I see quotes from this show flying around social media constantly. Andy and Bethany are really wealths, is that the way you say it? Wealths of wisdom. And they are super interesting in this interview. I can't wait for you to hear it. As a quick reminder, The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission. If you would, please support the show and support IJM by going to newactivist.is forward slash IJM. Again, that is newactivist.is IJM and fill out the form that you see there. It really will change lives. And it doesn't cost anything except for your time, like 20 seconds. You can spare that. Here is Bethany Wang in conversation with Andy Crouch. I hope you enjoy it. I can't wait. This is The New Activist. is indeed the new activist episode 004 with Andy Crouch. My name is Eddie Koffeltz and I am one of the hosts of the new activist and I'm really glad that you are here and that you found us. Thanks so much for listening. Listening to this interview um, has been really <laughs> shattering in a good way for me because Andy is a thought leader. He is a writer. His most uh, recent book is called Strong and Weak. And Andy is just one of those people who thinks and says the things that have not been thought of or said before. And to that end, that's what a lot of this interview is about. Andy is going to be talking about the intersection between justice and power and creativity and what it means to do the work of justice, to be an activist. He is going to be in conversation with Bethany Wang. Bethany is, in her own right, just a great thought leader. She just wrote the book, The Justice Calling, and I love this interview, and I love the conversation between the two of them, and I also love some of the little practical things that he shares about how he sees the theoretical uh, turning into very practical in his life. I have to mention one thing about Andy by way of biography. As I said, of course, he's a writer. But in uh, 2014, Lecrae dropped his name in a song. We got to listen to that right now, right? Here it is. I wrote background at the kitchen table. I thought it wouldn't make the album. Shortly after I got a hold of Tim Keller's books. Man, I promise you it's like my whole life changed. Andy Crouch wrote a book about culture making. And after that, I had to make a slight change. I mean, that's just as cool as cool gets, right? <laughs> I mean, if that ever happened in my life, well, this isn't about me. Let's move forward. Here is Bethany Wang in conversation with Andy Crouch. And I ain't even tripping on it. Uh, I got a mission that I'm fighting for. I'm writing songs trying to give you substance. Yeah, I'm writing songs fighting for you. So you've written and spoken on so many different topics over decades. I mean, the, the depth of what you have studied and mastered and um, inquired into is vast. Um, and over these last few years, 
there, I don't know if you would call it a, a shift, but there's a, a focus in on um, the creating and the use of power and flourishing and all of these connections to injustice and justice. How did that start to come about in your own thinking mm. and leadership and what you chose to focus your books on? Uh, well, I don't exactly know. Uh, I never have a plan or rarely have a plan. I have hunches and I follow my hunches. But I'm starting to realize that actually almost everything that I've been trying to work on and study and teach on does come together in one phrase, which is mm. the image of God. Mm. And for me, it started by thinking about creativity. Well, it really started by thinking about culture and what do we mean when we say culture? And then you, you quickly start thinking about creativity. But the moment you start thinking about creativity and culture in a biblical framework, you, you are drawn back to Genesis 1 and 2. And those are the image of God chapters. That's where that idea uh, is planted in the story. And, and I've realized that almost everything, <laughs> at least that I am interested in, fits into this picture of the, the image as it was meant to be, the image as it's been lost and distorted and the degrading and denying and, and erasing of the human image through injustice, and then the call of God's people really in response to God's own image-restoring action in history, which is, of course, the incarnation above all. Like, it all fits together in this framework. So wow. I totally did not get that, um, you know, at the beginning. And I don't exactly know where it will lead next, uh, but but that's how it all c comes together, I think, and how it all becomes coherent. How would you, and you've said that what you've been writing about is justice as well. So how, would, how do you explain the connection or the nexus between power and justice? So I see power as fundamentally a good thing, uh, as a gift from God to God's image bearers, and as, as reflecting the image of God. Uh, God is powerful, and God's power is made known primarily in creation. Uh, and this is the point of the Bible beginning with a creation story. Is It says true power is the power that can bring something into being. Um, and this is, a, I think, it's, uh, it's been important to me to stress this because so often when we talk about power, we immediately think about domination and mm. coercion, right. force, and violence. Why do you think that is? Because they're the most immediately palpable forms of power. If I pull out a gun or another weapon and make you do something, that's so visceral, like it's so immediately hmm. powerful, quote unquote, that, and it's so visible. Uh, so, so force, the ability to make something happen, is so immediate. And as opposed to creation, the ability to bring something into being, that's hmm. a much more hidden, subtle thing, even though I would say the ability to make, make something exist that wasn't there before is actually far more powerful than the ability to push things around and get your way with what already exists. Hmm. Does what, that make sense? It does. And what makes it more powerful, do you think? Because, uh, well, well, there's many layers. I mean, here's an example. The truth is coercion can only get you a very small range of outcomes, uh, like from another agent, from another human being. 
Um, there's, there's actually, the number of things I can make, can force you to do is actually very small. Hmm. Whereas if I create an environment where your God-given creativity can flourish, uh, it's literally unknowable and uncountable how many hmm. different things you as a human being could do. If I provide you an environment that, um, that uh, releases your creativity. So here's a crazy thing that I learned in college when I was taking linguistics. Um, <laughs> which turned the out to the crazy thing about linguistics. Yes. Such a crazy course. <laughs> so linguistics turns out to be way more interesting than I realized it would be. And one of the fascinating things is you have with with language, you have a fixed system of um, syntax and vocabulary. So you've got the rules of grammar, and then you have the vocabulary of the language. And none of us get to change the rules of grammar on our own. And none of us really on our own can add a new word. Like we pretty much use the words that already exist and we use the grammatical system that already exists, hmm. right? Right. And yet, linguists believe that every adult speaker of a human language has spoken a sentence that has never before been spoken by really? any other human being. Really? And you can model this mathematically and make the case. In other words, you you have, using the fixed resources of language that you inherited, uh, you know, when you acquired, say, the English language, you've used that in a way that no one has ever used it before. That So it has sort of infinite creative power. Now, if I try to force you to say something, the number of things I can force you to say is is very small, and, huh. it's, and it's all within the... the narrow confines of what I could imagine or what I need. Hmm. But you left to your own creative potential will say things no one would ever have thought even to ask you to say, let alone make you say. Wow. So creativity is infinite, whereas coercion is finite. Wow. Creativity is positive sum, whereas coercion is zero sum. Um, and that's why I would say that as, 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 powerful as coercive power seems to us, it's actually extremely narrow in what it can do hmm. compared to what creative power can do. So way back, <laughs> like before we got off on linguistic, uh, before I got off on linguistics, <laughs> um, you asked, what does that have to, just, to do with justice? So I would say justice is the restoring of creative power to God's image bearers. Hmm. And and in, in the process of restoring that power, you are going to come, come up against the systems of violence and coercion that limit human beings' God-given creativity mm. and, th and that prevent them from creating in the way they were meant to. Um, so you do uh, have to reckon with coercive power, force, violence, and those aren't all the exact same thing. There's force that's actually legitimate force. There's coercion that um, is actually appropriate as when parents discipline mm. a child. But violence, I think, is the real heart of the matter because violence is force that undermines the dignity of um, it, both its, actually its object and its subject, both the perpetrator and the victim, lose their God-given dignity in violence. And whenever that happens, you are now distorting fundamentally what was every human relationship is meant to lead to creativity and mm -hmm. fruitfulness. Um, but in systems of injustice, uh, human relationships actually, uh, what's the word? They, they, they distort and attenuate and, and mm. degrade human creativity instead right. of fostering it. Wow. What are some... I'm just wondering of an example of where you've seen this happening. Um, you can think hmm. of a, a human every day or someone that you've known or a case that you've heard about. 
um, that has really struck you as illustrating how this exploitation and abuse and violence happens and then um, the, the flip side, the restoration? Hmm. Hmm. Well, I, the, the example that comes to mind um, at the moment is, um, is just down the road from where Catherine and I and our family live, and that's a, a post-industrial city called Chester, Pennsylvania. And Chester is, is one of these places that was really built to serve the Industrial Revolution or the kind of modern factory mm. age. And in the age of factories in cities like Philadelphia, which is right up the road, um, you know, there were lots of pretty good jobs and possibilities uh, and, and reasonable pay. And so it was a pretty thriving city. And then mm. all the factories left. And so when the factories leave and the economy starts to change, these post-industrial cities become very difficult places to sustain a healthy uh, career or you know, work in. And so they become sort of our, if you have a picture in your mind of a blighted city, Chester is that city. Mm. So very violent, very high murder rate. Um, our, we live in a beautiful, beautiful town with some of the best schools in the state. Um, that is literally right next to this city with some of the worst schools in the state. Mm. And, and it's just because they have different, different histories of what their economies were built on, what their communities, what options the members of their community had. So the schools in Chester are really struggling to provide a, a good education for their students, um, as urban schools often do. And it's tremendously complex, of course, um, all the factors that go into this. But... A professor at Swarthmore College, um, who is a music professor, a number of years ago started um, uh, building relationships in the city of Chester, and he started this thing called the Chester Children's Chorus, and it was a way to get children singing together and to develop their capacity for uh, the arts and especially music. Hey friends, pardon the interruption, but here is the Chester Children's Chorus singing a bit from Oh Freedom. that the words they were singing were oh freedom oh freedom over me and before i'd be a slave i'll be buried in my grave and go home to my lord and be free <laughs> about that back to andy and this has become this celebrated part of our community it's an amazing wow. amazing musical ensemble and as he, his name is John Alstom, and um, he happens to be of African uh, descent, African-American, like many residents of Chester. So he has a cultural connection, um, has incredible gifts as a musician, as a leader, as a conductor, you know, just all the things. He's sort of got this amazing package uh, of, of capacities. Hmm. Um, but as he got deeper into working in the city of Chester, 
uh, he just, you start to run up against the limits of what a, a kind of single nonprofit can do. And so the vision that arose was um, a, an entire charter school that would be based around arts education, but be a comprehensive place where children of Chester could get a great education saturated with creativity. So it's called the Chester, uh, I think it's, if I remember the name right, it's just called the Chester School for the Arts. And it's in its second year now, or maybe third year. Wow. It has drawn on all kinds of resources from within the city of Chester, from the surrounding towns, including our town. My wife and I are supporting it financially. Friends of ours volunteer there. And, and in, in what looks like very inhospitable soil for human creativity and flourishing, this amazing school has emerged that is providing kids the chance to be kind of whole human beings. They're learning, you know, they're learning about math and science and reading and all that, but they're mm. also learning about how to create. And to me, that's a picture of, uh, you, you know, no amount of policing, no amount even of economic development narrowly understood could bring flourishing to this city that we live next to. But the, the creativity that's involved in letting children uh, not just express themselves, but actually develop the artistic disciplines of creativity that make you capable of expressing something profound and help you join this amazing multi-streamed human story of culture. Um, that is creating possibilities that never existed before in that city. What are the other parts of our society right now where we could hope and long for mm. that kind of flourishing hmm. to come about? Like where? Mm. Where do you see the ache for that? Mm. What other places? Uh, very broadly speaking, rural America, small town America. Mm. You know, one of the one of the challenging things is a city like Chester is very densely populated, and that density can be a challenge. It leads to certain kinds of um, certain kinds of violence can take root uh, in a in a dense environment that don't in other places, but. There are also resources uh, that come with density. There's social capital that comes with density. And the challenge in America is that our rural communities and our small towns um, are losing the sort of infrastructure that allowed them to maintain social capital. And, and so you look at, uh, as we're sitting here talking, you know, this presidential campaign is underway that is kind of exposed on one side of the campaign, let the listener understand what I'm talking about without mm -hmm. me saying it directly <laughs> has exposed the tremendous anger, fear, anxiety, mm -hmm. xenophobia. And there's one frame to look at that that says that's very unjust and, and it is, but another frame is this comes out of incredible pain in the communities that have been left behind by urbanization, left behind by the collapse of good dignified manual labor jobs in the United States. And I just see these, I mean, uh, in some ways it's easier to picture how cities like Chester can be turned around than how small cities and small towns that are often geographically isolated mm. and are and were dependent on economic systems that probably are never coming back, how those can be, how we can have hope for creativity in those places. But the flip side of that, I just was corresponding with a guy who lives in exactly a place like this. Um, he lives in uh, either Western Virginia or West Virginia. I actually don't remember where, but out in the mountains, you get into the same kind of cultural, economic, 
zone that West Virginia is part Absolutely. of. Absolutely, right. right. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is a pastor who lives there, and he sent me this beautiful essay about how his ancestors had sort of sold the soul of their community basically to coal, to wow. coal mining. Right. And for two generations, that bargain totally paid off financially. And, and it wasn't easy work, but it was, it was work that was valued. It, it literally powered America. Like there was a kind of dignity in it, hmm. but, but now uh, coal is, is diminishing uh, as, as an energy source. It's gone from this region. And now there's you know, you drive through his town and it looks like there's nothing. All right. But he wrote this incredible essay about how he sees the beauty of his community and the beauty of the people who live there. And it was this effort to restore the image of God in this place where most outsiders look and there's very negative denigrating ways that people talk about, you know, the residents of white Appalachia. Right. But he wrote this, this, uh, kind of composition that wasn't, it didn't deny the dysfunction at all. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, it, it spoke this vision of beauty and of, and of the beauty that they've entrusted with its natural beauty that now is actually becoming a resource in terms of tourism. And, you know, some of the best mm. fishing in the world is in the streams wow. in this community. And he said, let's start thinking about ourselves as having, as being stewards of beauty rather than people whose parents sort of failed to hold on to the, the jobs that we once had. Right. And one of the things that kept running through my head when I was reading your most recent book, where you talk about the connection between authority and vulnerability and how it's not a, uh, we can't turn that into a false, a false choice, a dichotomy that we have to right. choose one or the other. But when you bring them together, that they actually create what it is to be human. I've gone on too much about that. Can you talk about that? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> and can you please talk about two by two charts? <laughs> I kept thinking, like, how could we get Andy to describe a two by two chart on audio? Yeah, I'm that's sure the if, with if anyone can do it, if anyone can do it, it's you. But oh, it gosh. just well, it's the, so helpful. Yeah. So I mean, in the book, it's a, it's a way of visualizing. I don't know if it helps on audio or not, but. You know, just to imagine a chart with authority plotted on the vertical, you know, up and down. You can have more or less up or down. And then vulnerability, horizontal, um, more to the right, less to the left. And then that creates kind of four corners or quadrants, you could say. And where we're meant to live is, you could say, up and to the right. That is high authority, high vulnerability. That's a healthy human life. Um, healthy human families have this quality. Healthy human systems give people both authority and they ask them to take real risks. Um, they don't necessarily insulate us from all risk. And then the two big distortions, and this fits exactly with the way that Gary frames injustice. The two, the two fundamental distortions are authority without vulnerability mm -hmm. and vulnerability without authority. Yes. That you could end up in either of those corners and you wouldn't be where we're meant to be and they're connected. And that injustice is in a way the system that connects them because ah. injustice is the system that lets some people have authority without vulnerability. But that always happens as, at the expense of other people having vulnerability without authority. Because we, as human beings, we're meant to have both together. So if I want to have one without the other, if I want specifically, if I want to have authority without vulnerability, I have to 
go against the grain of the universe. I have to try to get something I was never meant to have. And that means I will always have to take it from someone else. If I want excess authority in my life, or if Mm. I want to shed vulnerability from my life, I'm going to have to grab that authority from somebody else, or I'm going to have to shed that vulnerability onto someone else. And that's what systems of injustice do. And so whenever you see people who are vulnerable without authority, who don't have the capacity to act in the image of God that they were meant to act, I guarantee there's some story of injustice as to why they are there. Um, and there's some person or group of people who maybe maybe in the present moment or maybe in history uh, tried to grab authority without vulnerability. Wow. Yes. And then the flip side, justice, how does that work? Yeah, so justice is restoring authority to the vulnerable and restoring vulnerability to the powerful. Hmm. So for justice to happen, Hmm. those of us who drift over to the left on my little quadrant, that is we end up with less vulnerability than we're meant to have, we have to embrace the vulnerability we're meant to have. And those that we sometimes call the poor, people who are vulnerable without authority, need to be given authority. Capacity for meaningful action would be my definition of it. They're given the capacity to act on their own behalf, on the behalf of their children and their communities uh, for flourishing. This is different, by the way, from charity, which says, I, from my position of lots of power, will give you stuff that you need. That often does not create any authority in the people that we allegedly are serving. So it actually can keep the same system going, even if it's done benevolently. Right. So all the work of justice is to create systems that give people authority who haven't had it and actually to expose people to risk who haven't had it. That's part of why, you know, part of what, so what's vulnerability for me as a highly powerful person? Well, one form would be accountability. So if I'm accountable for my actions, um, let's say that I'm a, 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 an officer of, of the law. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a lot of power given to me by the state. But, but vulnerability for me is that there's some force bigger than me that can hold me accountable to how I use that. Right. So this is why we have to create systems of accountability for people who wield the power of law enforcement, mm. people who have outsized amounts of wealth or political power. You have to create checks and balances, basically, that, that make you vulnerable. Now, if I'm in that position of power, would I rather just have no one be able to see what I, how I use it, no one hold me to account? Of course, I might. But to create a system of justice is to make sure that the powerful are held accountable. Because accountable when you're powerful is a form, accountability when you're powerful is a form of vulnerability. Um, wow. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> All right, we should talk holding mics awkwardly to our mouths more often. (laughs) Yes, please. Yeah, I think our friend Bethany said it best when she said, actually two times in the interview, (laughs) when she said, wow, that's exactly how I'm feeling right now after having listened to Andy, and I'm certainly still in the middle of processing it and would not be foolish enough to try to put a little bow on this for you. But I do want to repeat a quote that he said that is echoing inside of me. He said, justice is restoring authority to the vulnerable and vulnerability to the powerful. I am thinking of this not only in terms of the national and international conversations that we are having right now, but also in terms of me. In what ways am I perpetrating injustice? 
in what ways am I culpable for not restoring authority to those who are vulnerable? Is it even mine to restore? That's what I'm going to be thinking about. I really look forward to having this conversation with you on social media. If you'd like to chat more with Andy or learn more about where he is going to be, you can go to andy-crouch.com or his Twitter handle is really simple, at AHC. And we, of course, are on social media as well. New Activist is on Facebook and Twitter, and our website is newactivist.is. Also, you can subscribe to this show anywhere that you listen to podcasts. And we are super grateful for those of you who have left reviews and stars. It's also really humbling. Thanks for all of your kind words. If you feel so inclined to go and review slash star up the show on iTunes, it's really helpful for people finding us. So thanks. The new activist theme was composed by Ether. You can listen to more of his music at soundcloud.com forward slash Ether. Also, a very special thanks to the Chester Children's Chorus. You guys, if you're listening, you're so talented. And we love your music and we love your story. You can learn more about them. We put a link on our episode page. And we also want to thank Lecrae, who was very generous in letting us use that little clip. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Kuffoltz. Take care, friends.